just kidding. Uh, as today is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, I thought I would uh, share a story that ties to the occasion and uh, as well reminds us that things aren't always as they appear. Apparently Bob received a free ticket to the Super Bowl from his boss and unfortunately when he arrived at the stadium he realized that his seat is located in the very last row in the corner furthest from the field with an obstructed view. But halfway through the first quarter as any fan realizes what you do is you take your binoculars and you look for seats that aren't being used. So halfway through the first quarter he noticed an empty seat right on the 50 yard line so he kind of worked his way over in that direction before he sat down though he asked the man next to him, said excuse me is somebody sitting here? And the man said, no. And Bob said, wow, who would ever have a Super Bowl ticket and not use it? The man said, well, actually, the seat belongs to me, and I was supposed to bring my wife, but she died. And this is the first Super Bowl we haven't been at together since we were married back in 1969. Bob said, gosh, I'm sorry, but couldn't you have brought a friend or maybe a, a relative? And he said, no, they're all at her funeral today. Hey, I, I could, it, it could have been worse. I could have saved that for my annual Mother's Day story. But as I mentioned today, is Super Bowl Sunday. The event has evolved into quite a spectacle with literally the world tuning in to watch what they call in the business the dance. Yet no matter how big such days may become, there was no day outside perhaps the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that was so important in human history as the day that we'll read about in the second chapter of the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, where in Acts chapter 2, we are introduced to the dynamite of God. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read about the dynamite, as I call the dynamite of God. It says, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each, each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why not, are, why not are all of these Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own language, each of us, where we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Serena, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are all full of sweet wine. Recently I ran across a headline that caught my attention as it relates to what we've just read in this passage. There's a book that came out, the title of it says, book, uh, uh, Christianity is still the world's largest religion. Christianity remains the world's largest religion, according to a major religious reference book recently published. The trends are reported in the second edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, Oxford University Press, and a compilation of statistical estimates and descriptions for each religious group in each nation. 
Christianity began and ended the century as the world's largest religion, the encyclopedia says, with 555 million, and I'm going to preface this by saying professed believers, in 1990, or 32% of the world's population, and 1.9 billion, or 31%, as of last year, the year 2000. You know, as we've been going through the book of Acts, I've mentioned several times that there are reasons why I have come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. One of them was that we looked at the fulfilled prophecy of Scripture over and over again. We see many times where 800 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years, 2,000 years before specific dates took place that the events that were told or foretold took place exactly as the Bible tells us that they would. Second thing that we looked at was the resurrection, the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was another reason or evidence that we can have as we give and share with those who ask us to give a defense for the hope that was within us. You know, why do we believe what we believe? Another reason that we have is just shared here before us and we'll look at as we go through Acts chapter 2 is just the existence of the Christian church. The fact that 1.9 billion people as of last year professed belief in Christianity is another very strong reason to consider the claims of Jesus Christ because obviously Christianity is a movement that follows uh, Jesus Christ as its leader and so we look at that and begin to ask the questions what is it that we believe when we profess to claim to be Christians what exactly is that 1.9 billion people profess to believe to be Christians as of the end of last year the year 2000 now what's fascinating to me is that how did such phenomenal growth occur when you consider after all in Acts chapter 1 which we've read there were, we were told of only a small group of believers of people who had came to faith in Jesus Christ after seeing him resurrected 120 people, to be precise, were in an upper room that had gathered together men and women who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that He was who He claimed to be, God in human flesh who came to save the world from their sins. After, they, after His many convincing proofs at the resurrection, they put their faith and trust in Him. 120 people out of a then-known population in the Roman Empire in that particular area of 2 to 3 million people. How could 120 people turn their world upside down? It's a great question. And it's one that's answered in this particular passage because as we see, we are introduced to the dynamite of God. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said that they were to wait and that He would send, if you've got your Bibles, look back and He says, but you shall receive power. The word dunamis is translated in English, dynamite, and that's why I like to use it, the dynamite of God. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That you will receive power. In Acts chapter 2, we have a turning point in, in the history of God's kingdom. A new phase of His redemptive work begins to unfold. In, in chapter 1, the disciples were told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 2, He comes. In chapter 1, the disciples were equipped in chapter 2, they were empowered to do that which God would have them do. In chapter 1, they were held back. In chapter 2, and for, from then on, they would be sent forth into the world. And as we look at this, in chapter 1, the Savior, Jesus, ascends into heaven. And in chapter 2, we see that the Spirit of God descends upon believers. 
It's an exciting time. It is, it is without question one of the most, the, if not the greatest day in human history, what God began to do on that particular day. His redemptive plan goes all the way back as far as human beings are concerned. We look in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God's redemptive work of trying to, and the, and the word redeemed means to buy back. And in fact, if you have an understanding of what it means, the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. At a historic moment in time, God's creation, man, was alienated from God. And it's important that we never forget that and we understand that because there's a historic moment in time where man's relationship with God changed drastically. God created man in His image and His likeness to have fellowship with God, to enjoy His presence, and for us to glorify and to worship Him as God, to honor Him as God, for He is our Creator. But at a very specific historic moment in time, man rebelled against God. God laid out the, the, the command, you shall not eat of this particular tree. That was the standard that was set, the command that was set. And Adam said, you know what, I'm going to do it. As he was tempted to do so by the evil one, the Bible says, Satan himself, who said, surely God didn't mean what he said. Surely there aren't the consequences God said. Surely you won't die. What's death? Nothing ever died up to that point. So what could he be talking about? You don't understand. He didn't mean that. How can he tell you you can enjoy everything else, but you can't enjoy that? He didn't really mean that. And, and, and the pattern of temptation has never changed. The pattern of temptation to do that which is wrong before God has never changed. And it continues to be the same. And that is this. It always calls into question the reliability and the truthfulness of what God has to say. And minimizes the consequences as a result. Hey, don't worry about it. There's no price to pay. Or if you're going to pay a price, it's not going to be that big anyway. So why don't you just enjoy yourself? But the Bible says the moment that Adam rebelled against God and did his will, Adam's will, rather than God's will, the Bible says that sure, as surely as he did it, the promise of God was fulfilled. That through sin, that through that act of disobedience, sin entered the world, and as a result, so did death. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. The reason every human being that has ever lived has died or will die is because there is sin in our life. The Bible says we are born alienated from God. We're born with a sin nature. It's important that we recognize and understand that. From the very beginning, God, knowing the choice that man would make, has been trying to unveil His plan that man can see His plan to redeem man from that particular decision that has stained all of us throughout human history. God has actively been seeking man so that He can offer to us a way to be right again with God and enjoy the original purpose of our creation to have fellowship with our Creator and to worship Him and to glor and glorify Him and to spend eternity with Him. That's the plan that was laid out. And God's plan has continued to be laid out through human history. And we see in this particular day that, that God is fulfilling everything that He had promised. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 7, we read these words, verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The promise of God is that one day the Spirit of God would come and not only 
regenerate or recreate, as we are singing, a new heart in each person who believes in Christ. But He would wash us, regenerate us, make us alive and make us new again in the presence of God. Forgive us our sins so that we can have fellowship with God. It's an exciting promise of God, but the promise could not be fulfilled until Jesus ascended into heaven. And that was what he had said to his disciples in John 16. He says, I have to go away. Don't get bummed out about it. New Living Translation again. Don't get disappointed or discouraged about it. Don't get bummed out about it because when I go and I ascend back to my Father, I will send a helper to you and fulfill the promise that I am making here. This day that we are reading about in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of the promise of God. One more reason to believe in the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. One more reason if we don't have enough but another solid reason to believe. Now, it's important as we go back to Acts chapter 2, this particular passage describes the birth of the church by the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, look at verse 1, and let's take a look at how it's introduced to us. Um, It's real important that we look at this. It says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, when the day of Pentecost had come, The important background that we need to look at is that to set the stage, we need to understand the day of Pentecost was one of seven Jewish feasts, three of which, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, every Jewish male over 20 years old had to attend. That's why when we read through chapter 2, you look at all the people that were there from all over the place, you go, what in the world were all those people doing there at that particular moment in time? It'd be like if somebody took a snapshot of what's going on in Tampa today, and you got literally hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, of people that are there for a specific occasion. You say, well, why are all these people from all over the world at this particular place at this particular time? Well, here's the event that's taking place. Just as we watched when the Olympics were on, why were all the people of the world in Australia for the Olympics? Well, because this was the event that was occurring. Why are all these people in in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas? Well, because there is a great feast day that's occurring and every male over the age of 20 had to be there and attend. That's why when we read through chapter 2, you go, wow, what are all these people doing? They're from all over the place, speaking all these different languages and different dialects. What are they there for? Well, they're there because they had to be there. And so when we look at this, according to Leviticus 23, we find a a timetable that helps us to uh, relate to our passage and also gives us an explanation as to the meaning of what it means to be fulfilled or fully come. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come. This is very important. It refers to when it fully comes, some translations had or had come, it refers to a fulfilling of a promise that had been made. When the day of Pentecost had come or fully come or when it was fulfilled, the word Pentecost means 50th. Okay? It's in the New Testament, it's the name for the Feast of Weeks, which is in Exodus 34, and also uh, the Feast of Harvest, which you'll see in Exodus 23. And it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. So let me go through and explain something that will help us to understand what's going on in our passage. Number one, the Passover that had been instituted for generations in Egypt. It goes back to the book of Exodus. If you remember the story, uh, you know, God had said that if you put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home, that if you do that, the angel of death will pass over your house. The curse at that particular time was all the firstborn children in Egypt would be killed because Pharaoh stubbornly and rebelliously before God would not listen to the will of God as it was spoken through Moses. And so God had to try to get his attention. 
Well, the Feast of Passover was to celebrate that particular occasion where God promised that if you put the blood of the Lamb above the doorpost of your house, the angel of death will, will pass over your house and go to the next house. If the blood of the Lamb was on that doorpost, it would pass over that house, go to the next house. And the curse would only apply to those who did not believe and act upon the Word of God. It's important. The curse only applies to those who did not believe and act upon the Word of God. Because you sit there and go, how in the world does putting blood of a lamb over your doorpost protect you from the angel of death? Well, it does because God promised it would. So people today say, well, how in the world can the death of Jesus Christ and His blood on my behalf protect me from the consequences of sin or the judgment of God or the condemnation of God? I don't understand. How does that happen? Well, because God said it will. If you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, believing that He died on the cross in your place, rose again three days later, and you believe that, and you, and you receive that as truth, the Bible says the judgment of God will pass over you and I as well. How does that happen? It happens because God says it will. It's as simple as it gets. But the Passover was fulfilled, same word, in the death of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The reason the Passover was celebrated for generations in Israel was a picture or a foreshadow of what God was to do in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The second fulfillment as we look at these feasts was the Feast of First Fruits. First Fruits speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.23. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, they that are at Christ's at His coming. Fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruit, they who are Christ's at His coming, will be raised as well. It was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything God does, He does for a purpose. There's nothing capricious as far as God is concerned. Everything He does, He does for a purpose and there's a reason. Now we need to understand the reason so that we can then apply it as applicable in our life. The Passover was fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. First fruits were fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then 50 days later, okay, 50 days later we find the fulfillment, which is exactly the word that we have, and when the day of Pentecost had come or is fulfilled. We have the birth of the church or the giving of the Holy Spirit. Fifty days later, exactly as they had celebrated for generations in Israel, fifty days afterwards. Now listen to me. That's why it's so important that we understand this. The Spirit of God came on the day that God promised it would come. It didn't come because that group of people were praying to receive the Spirit. It didn't come because that group of people were begging to receive the Spirit of God. It didn't come because they were persistent in their prayer life. It came because it had been ordained by God that the Spirit of God, He would come the day that God had scheduled for Him to come. 
And the timetable was all God set up generations ago, 50 days after the resurrection. The Spirit of God descended on this group of people, and we're going to see the significance of all of that as we go through it. But the Bible tells us, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we are Jews or Gentiles, whether we are bond or free, and have been all made into drink into one Spirit. The day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. It's interesting when you go through and read Leviticus 23, is that there was something that the priests did. They took two loaves of bread, and they would wave those two loaves of bread before God as an honor to God that everything they, they, they received came from the hands of God. Like many of us today who are not Jewish, but have an understanding that when we sit down to pray and we look at the food before us, it's just a reminder to us as we pray. It's not something that we do. Hopefully it's something that we do with some, some thought that precipitates it and that says, you know what? We are so fortunate and grateful to God that we have the food that was prepared, whether we cooked it ourselves, whether we're out in a restaurant, wherever we are, that God has provided for us. And we just want to thank Him and honor Him for the fact that we never want to take for granted that everything that we have comes from the hand of God. There's some thought that goes behind that. And so as the priest would wave these two loaves of bread before God, it, it, was, it was an act of remembering that there was the first fruits of the harvest that was to come. Jesus, the first fruits of the harvest of God that's to come. But also there were two loaves of bread, and we'll see the fulfillment in this. In Acts chapter 2, one loaf represented the nation of Israel and the Jews. The other loaf represents the Gentiles, all the rest of the world, who are also invited to participate in the plan of God for salvation. The Jews receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, as we'll see. The Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, when we get there, will receive the same gift of the Holy Spirit. But God's promise or plan would be fulfilled by the waving of those two loaves, symbolic of what would take place on Pentecost. That's the background that's there. The Holy Spirit, or the dynamite of God, began to perform a ministry on the day of Pentecost, fulfilling what had been celebrated for generations in Israel. So the question is this, what happened on this great day in human history? And I want to make it very simple, a simple outline so that we can understand the significance of what's going on. But we'll go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at what happened that day. There were two things that stood out as I was going through and kind of making an outline. And uh, just for an outline purpose, two things that happened. Number one, we need to recognize that there was a mighty sound. There was a mighty sound. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 2. When the day of Pentecost in verse 1 had come or was fulfilled, the fulfillment of the purpose that God originally had intended says they were all together in one place. Who were all? They were all the ones that we already learned about in Acts chapter 1, the 120 that met regularly in the upper room. They were all together again, probably and most, uh, possibly most probably in the same place where they regularly met. They were all together. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Notice the place from which this sound comes. As we're reading through the Bible, it's very important as you read through it to have again an understanding that there are certain uh, rules of interpretation, so to speak, that we need to use as we're reading through. And when we begin to ask specific questions, for example, where did the sound come from? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate because God tells us exactly where it came from. The Bible says there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Okay? We know the place that it came from is heaven. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I want you to see the significance of that. Turn back to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, in the middle of your Bible, the very beginning of the book of Psalm, in Psalm 29, notice in verse, we'll start with verse 1. 
And we're going to get a picture that's painted throughout the Bible to help us understand what it is that's going on at this particular time in the book of Acts. Psalm 29, verse 1, we read this. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And He makes Lebanon skip like calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says glory. The voice of the Lord. Turn with me to the book of Revelation as we see some additional insight from Scripture that helps us to understand what's going on in Acts chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 1, look at the words found in verse 12 starting there. Last book of the Bible. And I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were like white, like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it was been caused to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. If you turn ahead to chapter 4, verse 5, we see the same description. And from the throne proceeds flashes of lightning and sounds and bills of thunder. If we go forward again to chapter 11, look at verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Revelation 19, we see the same thing. We can easily assume as we go through and as we read Scripture that the sound that was coming from heaven was nothing less than the voice of Almighty God. Think about it for a second. The Bible says in the, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God hoovered over or moved across the surface of the deep. And then God said and He spoke the worlds into existence. We know from Hebrews 11 that God spoke the worlds into existence. The very voice and the mighty voice of God Himself. He spoke the worlds into existence and His voice was like peals of thunder and lightning flashing in the sky. Every time in Scripture we see heaven open, what comes out of it is astonishing and startling to say the least. Luke describes it as something that happened suddenly. Which is interesting because as the believers were gathered together, they knew what God had promised would take place. But when God's promises are fulfilled, it happens suddenly in God's timing. So often is the case. In fact, the Bible says that even though those who are on earth will see the signs of Jesus' return or His coming, those who are here, they'll see the signs of His coming. But the Bible says that when He comes, He'll come suddenly like a thief in the night. The Bible tells us, each one of us, that Jesus, His return is imminent. That any day that He can return at any time according to God's timetable. In the meantime, we don't know what the timetable is, but we know what we're supposed to be doing in the interim while we await His coming. But the Bible says that the day that Jesus returns, it'll come suddenly. Even though we're waiting for it to happen, when it happens, it'll be suddenly. Even though they are waiting for the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit who was to be giving them, the moment that it happened, happened suddenly. 
And as I'm thinking about this, as these men and women are gathered together in this room, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. The only way that I could even relate to it as a human being, when I was younger and somewhat less responsible than I am today, I used to like to go white water rafting. And has anybody ever done that? All right, have you ever been on the river and you're going and you can kind of hear a noise kind of in the distance? You know what I'm saying? And you're going and you're getting, and the noise is getting louder and louder. And you know what's happening because you've been there, you've seen it, and man, your heart starts to pound, it starts to race, and you know that just in any moment now, and it's deafening when you get to it. And you drop into those rapids, you drop into a hole, and you start to go, and there's no turning back, there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. And it's just, it's so loud that when people fall out of your boat, I learned this from experience, when they fall out of your boat and they're yelling for help, you can't hear them. And the only way I knew one guy wasn't even there anymore is I saw a Timex come up from underneath the boat. And it was still ticking. But, and the guy who was following the Timex, when we pulled up an arm, there was a person attached to it, fortunately. And, uh, man, he was like white as a sheet. And it was noisy, and it was loud, and it happened suddenly, even though you know it's coming in the distance. If you've ever been somewhere that maybe if you haven't gone white water rapping, maybe you've gone to Niagara Falls or something like that, and you've gone closer to the edge, and the closer you get, the louder it is. I was thinking about that as I'm reading through this, and I begin to realize how foolish I am often in my view of God. I want you to consider for a second the culture that we live in. I heard so many interviews this week of different athletes talking about the Super Bowl, and and I hear some of the most interesting statements, and you probably have made them or heard them yourself, but you hear stuff like, yeah, well, I'm just trusting myself to the big guy upstairs. You know, the, the big dodger in the sky. You know, the man upstairs. And I, and I think of how ignorant we really are of who we're talking about. Every time God just gives us a peek of heaven in Scripture, it's awesome. It's astonishing. It's startling. It's amazing. The voice of God is frightening, powerful and mighty. The voice of God that spoke the worlds into existence. The same power of the voice of God when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The same voice that spoke the worlds into existence that says your sins are forgiven. Certainly He can accomplish both. The voice of God that said, take up your pallet and walk. The voice of God that said, your eyes are opened, you can now see. Or your ears, you can now hear. The voice of God says that those who trust in Jesus Christ will surely never be held accountable for sin and surely shall have eternal life. The voice of God is trustworthy. The power and the majesty, the might of God is seen in this great event at Pentecost where suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Do you realize that God has voluntarily restricted the sound of His voice so that you and I can understand it? God has voluntarily restricted the mighty voice of His to the written words that are on the pages before us so that we can understand it. I have people say to me all the time, well, I wish God would just speak to me from heaven. I say, really? 
Are you sure about that? You've got to watch for what you ask for. You really want to hear an audible voice from heaven? Are you sure about that? Now remember what we just read. The voice of God splits the cedars of Lebanon. That's a hard wood tree. Now I know some of us have hard heads. But you don't want God audibly speaking to you from heaven. He'll split your head open. He'll just blow it right apart. It was like a movie I saw once where they had these little collars they used to wear, this prison movie. And if they went outside and they tried to escape, their heads would blow up. Hey, we're always looking for word pictures. <laughs> hey, did that make you sick? Where are you going? Hey, you go past that door, your head's going to explode. <laughs> Back to something a little more serious. Amen. Don't you yell amen. Because <laughs> if anybody's on the edge, if I were the people around you, man, I'd give a little perimeter there. <laughs> At least wear one of those shields, you know, that the dentists wear now, you know. On a more serious note, don't ever forget that God still speaks to man. He speaks through His Word. He speaks through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who have trusted Christ. He speaks for the, the, uh, the uh, safety that's found in a multitude of godly counselors. He speaks to us in prayer. God's voice can still be heard. He speaks to us today. One of the greatest needs in all of our lives as believers is to hear the voice of God. The question that I ask myself is, am I listening? You know, the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. To listen to the voice of God speaking to each one of us individually oftentimes leading us in different directions, but in a purpose that is God has ordained for each one of us in our service to Him. Am I listening to His voice? Am I following His direction? Am I heeding what He says in the Word of God and being obedient in my life on a daily basis? Do I listen to the counsel of godly people that He brings into my life to help me stay on the straight and narrow path that He gives us? See, God speaks to us in many ways, and for some of us, we are really stubborn people. And we're not listening to Him at all. We know what His Word says, we do what we want to do, and we violate it anyway. We listen to the counsel of godly people, whether it's parents, whether it's friends, whether it's other people in our life, and we hear them say things, but all that we hear is basically just this, we just tune them out, shut it off. Or we see their lips moving, but we're not hearing a thing that they say. And the reason I know we're not hearing what they say is because we don't apply what they tell us to do. The reason I know that many of us don't hear the voice of God is because if we heard what He said, we would apply the things He tells us to do. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll obey My commandments. And the only way you obey My commandments is you've got to hear what they are. And the only way you hear what they are is you've got to be in My Word. And the only way that you know that it's truth is the Spirit of God in your heart convicts you of truth and whispers to you, Amen, do what you're supposed to be doing. See, in addition to the place, we also have to notice the purpose in which this noise from heaven emanates. The purpose of the sound. Notice in chapter 2, in verse 2, it says, the whole house where they were sitting, the whole house became aware of it. Every believer in that room, the purpose of the sound was to demonstrate God's power to His people. They were the only ones in that particular room. 
their benefit that they would witness the power of God. Today, we desperately need to know as believers and experience the power of God in our lives. It should never become business as usual for any believer. We should always be first and foremost in our mind, aware of the awesome and powerful God that we serve. His voice splits the cedars of Lebanon. His voice called the universe into existence. His voice leads us on the straight and narrow path. His voice offers forgiveness and love. There are far too many times in my life that I forget the power of God. I put way too many limitations on what He can and cannot do in my life. The Bible over and over again allows us to see God's power on display. Just in the life of Jesus alone, we see His power over nature. In the midst of the storm, He walked across the water. In the midst of the storm, at the end of all of that, He said, just knock it off, and the storm was still. The storm was gone. The seas were quiet. In the midst of all of that, we see His power over disease, as I already mentioned, opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and raising those who had never walked and even raising up from the dead those who had died. The power over disease and the power over demons, the evil one. The power over Satan himself. We see the power over death and sin as He raises up and gives life to those who trust in Christ. In Romans 8, read it on your own, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principality nor things to come nor things that were nor powers nor any other created thing can ever separate us. Height, nor depths, nor death, nor famine, nor disease, nor nakedness, nor peril, or anything can ever separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is a powerful and mighty God. There's nothing. In fact, when our children were little, I'm convinced of this, not only because the words of Scripture tell us, but from the voice of even innocent children. When our children were little, they used to walk around the house and they used to sing a song and says, my God is so big. And they used to do the hand things, you know, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Man, some of the best theology I ever learned, I learned through our children as God raised them up in the nourishment and the nurturement and the understanding of who God is. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Along with demonstrating the dynamite of God to the believers. Notice this also if you look at verse 6. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. They were bewildered. The multitude came together. The multitude outside of that room that were meeting in that town in that particular day, and we've already talked about how many people that they were, but when the sound from heaven came, as you can imagine, this boom, this thunder, this noise that was there, when the sound came, the multitudes who were outside all gathered together to that particular place and they were looking at this building, this home where they were meeting. They were looking up into this room. They were trying to figure out what happened. Have you ever heard an explosion? Have you ever heard something that caught your ear, your attention, and you go running outside? Have you ever heard an auto accident and you hear two cars smashed against each other and the force and the thunder of that kind of collision and you run to go see what happened? It was like that. The multitudes ran to this location to see what was going on and, and, and it just reminds me, let me tell you something, God is always trying to get man's attention. Why? So that we can hear the message that He has for us. How does God try to reach us? I love this. Insurance companies even say it. It's an act of God. It's an act of God. An earthquake, quake, or a flood, or a fire, or a storm, or a vo volcanic eruption. It's an act of God. We need to be paying attention. God's trying to get a hold of us. He's trying to reach us. Cedars of Lebanon. He's trying to say, hey, I am here. 
I do exist. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. I exist. Look around. I'm here. There is a Creator. I made you. And you want to know why you're here or where you come from or where you're going? You're sick. You're thinking of dying. You know, it's like somebody's going to die or somebody's sick or there's an illness in your family or there's a death in your family. God's always trying to get a hold of our attention. He's always trying to reach us. You having financial difficulties or marital problems or you having academic struggles or athletic disappointments? What is it that's going on in your life? He's trying to get a hold of you. He's trying to get your attention. He's got a message that He wants to share with you and to tell you and to tell me. And it's not even through those occasions in life. You know, there are other times where it's through, you know, how about a sunrise or a sunset? How about the birth of your child or children? How about a gift, the gift that He's given you of a spouse or financial blessings or material comforts? I know people that have made tremendous amounts of money. And you know what's fascinating to me? I, I deal with professional athletes who have made millions and millions of dollars. One guy in particular got a $10 million signing bonus. And you know what he said to me? Why me? And my godly counsel to him was, so you can share it with me? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not true. But, but, the, but the point that was being made was, hey, there is a reason that was you. God is trying to get our attention. Since Adam's sin, it's been man who's been running and hiding from God. It is not God playing hide and seek with man. God demonstrates His love for us, and yet while we're sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. He sent Jesus Christ to seek and to save that which was lost. God is trying to get our attention. You know, it's important that we realize, too, that we who have heard and received the message... And what's the message? That man is a sinner separated from God, judged by God, condemned by God on the road to hell. The message is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The message is that if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you'll be made right with God, a child of God to those who believe in His name. If you understand that you are a sinner and you turn from sin and turn back to God, because you're running away from God, you stop and you turn back towards Him. And you recognize and acknowledge that you're a sinner. And you respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, that He died on the cross in your place, and three days later He rose again from the dead. That's the message that we're to share. And you'll never be held accountable for sin any longer. You'll never be judged for sin. That not only do you have eternal life the moment you trust in Christ, but that eternal life is fulfilled at the coming of Christ or when you return to heaven and we spend eternity with Him in heaven and His glory and His presence instead of in a place called hell. See, that's the message that we're to share. And we who have heard that message and we who have received that message must never forget that God is actively bringing people into our lives through the events that I just mentioned so that we can share that message with them. When somebody says, why me? We're in a position to answer the question because God loves people. But you know that that's not enough. All the millions of dollars in this world can't buy your way into heaven. And you know it and I know it. And you thought it would fulfill you and it hasn't. And you're more miserable now than you've ever been. And there's a good reason for it. Because the things of this earth are passing. The things of this earth will just provide one more toy after another. And it's just with nothing but, but, but uselessness. Or as Solomon said, futility. Vanity of vanities, it's all vain. Chasing soap bubbles. Every person God brings in our path as He makes this noise in our life through the dynamite of God and the Holy Spirit. He draws people to us so that we can turn people to Jesus. He says, you raise me up and I'll draw all people to myself. 
Not only was he talking about raising up on the crucifixion, but he was talking as he was raised into heaven and ascended back to the Father. And as we who have trust in him believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second thing, not only was there a mighty sound and we see the place and the purpose for all of it, but we also recognize that there was a miraculous sign. And as we look at this, you know, it's amazing to me how simple it is to understand what's going on and yet how confusing it can get in our culture. The miraculous sign is seen in verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. First, we see an appearance. As I mentioned, as we were reading through and studying the Bible, the Bible very clearly says there appeared to them tongues as of fire. It is a word to describe an event that's taking place for the purpose of us trying to put it into words or understanding so that there would be some comprehension of what's going on. Just as I mentioned that the noise was as or like if you've ever been at Niagara Falls or like if you've ever been white water rafting, the same thing is happening here. He's saying that there were tongues as of fire distributing themselves. It was not actually fire. It was as of fire. And these tongues were like fire rested on each one of them, all 120 persons that were gathered in the room. And that's important. Rested on each one of them. The significance. Each and every person experienced in them the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everyone there received the same gift. Remember the diversity of people that were there. We saw the 12 apostles that were there. We saw Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. We saw the half-brothers of Jesus that were there. We saw, from a social standing, people that would be put on different pedestals or different planes from a social view. But, from God's perspective, every one of those people that were there are on an equal plane before God. There's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and all the rest of us fall into the humanity that's being offered salvation for those who believe in His name. Each person in that room, each and every one, received the gift or the power, the dynamite of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand that. The Spirit of God had been active prior to Pentecost. As I mentioned, the Spirit of God worked in creation. And and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God had been actively involved at different times in human history. In fact, the Spirit of God would descend upon certain people for a specific purpose at that particular time. We see the Spirit of God descended upon Samson at one particular time. The Spirit of God descended upon other believers for the purpose of accomplishing a ministry that God had sent them forth to accomplish. The dynamite or the power of God to establish that person to do the work God called them to do. The Spirit of God had often worked throughout human history. But on this particular day, two changes would take place. The Spirit would dwell in people and not just come on them temporarily. And the second thing is, is that as we look at this, the Spirit would dwell in people, not just come on them, and His presence would be permanent, not temporary. That's why this day in human history was an awesome day. As you and I receive the message I just shared and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Ephesians chapter 1, Titus chapter 3, John chapter 14, John chapter 16. The Bible promises this. For those who are in Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit of God. His presence indwells us. We're baptized into the church as a whole. We go to local churches that exist, but we're baptized into the body of Christ, all believers. The Spirit of God dwells in us and is given to us as a down payment of the promise of God that where His Spirit is, we, He will return His Spirit to Himself and with His Spirit goes us. 
Jesus said in John 14, what are you all bummed out about? Don't be troubled, you know, don't worry about it because where I go, I prepare a place for you and if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But where I am, you shall always be. The Spirit of God given to every believer, the dynamite of God given as a promise of God that if we trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, that we can make a dynamic difference in the world in which we live. The power of God residing in each one of us and permanently, not just temporarily. It was a tremendous change in what was taking place as far as the activity of God. It was an experience that God did, not something we do. You don't have to pray to receive the Spirit of God. You pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and Jesus Christ baptizes us in the Spirit the moment in time where we trust in Christ. That's what took place. The question, though, is why in the appearance of tongues? I mean, why not something else? Well, we're told right there. The reason for it was they were given a specific ability, the believers, was to speak with other tongues. The source of the tongues is the Holy Spirit, not themselves. Every believer who is trusted in Christ receives the Spirit of God. Notice what it says. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit giving, gave them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. Notice the nature of these tongues were an ability to speak in a language that they had never learned nor studied nor had the ability to speak in. And it's important that we recognize and understand it. They were giving the ability. And they were amazed. The multitudes were amazed saying, Why aren't all these people that are here speaking Galileans? Think about this. It's an incredible event that's taken place. And in fact, the Bible says they were absolutely amazed by what was going on. There was amazement that was taking place. God drew the multitudes by the sound from heaven, listen, drew the multitudes by the sound from heaven to this particular place at this particular moment in time, gave these people the ability who had received the Spirit of God and filled them at that moment for this occasion so that they could speak in the language of those who God had drawn to them for the purpose of hearing of the mighty deeds of God. It doesn't get any simpler than that. They were saying, how is it then that each one hear them in our own language to which we were born? Look at the groups of people that were there. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Serena, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. Every person that was there was hearing these people, the 120 by the way, speak in, their, in a language that every person heard. How incredible was that? You think that wasn't amazing? And it was a sign or affirmation that what was happening was from God. And you know why we know that? Because it was God who confused human language to begin with. God at the Tower of Babel confused human language to, to retard evil in the world. That as man got together and man's heart was evil against God and wanted to do the will of man instead of the will of God, God said, I will confuse their language to slow down the evil in the world. That's how wicked and deceitful we are as people. That when man gets together, think about it though, it's evident in our culture. Every new technology that comes out, what's the first thing that happens? Somebody finds an evil way to use it. We've got to establish new laws. We've got to establish new branches of government or new forces, uh, law enforcement forces to be able to now, the big thing is, you know, crime over the Internet, pornography over the Internet. Every, tech, every new technology man comes up with, there's a bent in man, the sin nature of man that, that, that says, you know what, we can find a good way to use this for evil. 
A good way to use it for evil. But that's what happens. They were amazed at what was going on. God's, ju- God's judgment at Babel scattered the people. God's blessing at Pentecost brought believers together. At Babel, people were unable to understand each other. At Pentecost, every person could understand what was being said. At Babel, it was a scheme designed to praise men and make a, n- a name for men. At Pentecost, it was a- a- an event that took place to give praise and glory back to God where it rightfully belonged. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion. Here at Pentecost, we see a ministry of humble submission to God. What a contrast in human history and God was behind them both it was amazing it was amazed they were amazed at and you know when, when you read through the Bible you go through kind of who what where when why and all that kind of stuff notice this it was amazed they were amazed at how it was done they were looking at these people saying there's no way that human beings can do what these people are doing what was going on here hey you know how it was being done the spirit of God was given to each one of those people and they were empowered to do what God had called them to do the dynamite of God was in action boom It was blowing up all these people that were there kind of going, what in the world's going on? How it was done, the Spirit of God. Who was doing it? These Galileans who all had a very distinct accent or dialect, we know that because when Peter was denying Jesus, if you remember, the little girl that came to him and said, nah, you're one of them because you have that Galilean dialect, you talk just like them. Every now and then, you know, something will come out of me that goes back to my Pittsburgh roots. Like, you know, hi, how how are you doing? You know, something like that, you know. Or, or are you looking at me? No, but that kind of stuff. But, you know, and I kind of slip out. And, and, and you know, when I talk in business, oftentimes I, I speak with someone that I go, hey, you know what, oh, you're from the East Coast. Well, you know, like, well, you know, and then they say something that, that, you know, makes you realize that they are. But it's like, you know, how do you know that or whatever. It's like somebody from the South, you know, how you do, how y'all doing? Good to see y'all. You know, oh, where are you from? You know, it's that, that kind of thing. And so there's a very distinct dialect. Well, what was happening here was these people were speaking in languages for groups of people that they had never learned that language, never spoke that language, and their dialect was also gone, a very powerful evidence of the working of the Spirit of God. They were amazed by what was going on. They were amazed at what was being said. What was being said? It said that they spoke of the mighty deeds of God in verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Why was it happening? That's the question I want to stop with. Why was it happening? And you notice there's two responses of the people that were there. Some were saying, what is it that God is doing? And others said, they're a bunch of drunks. What is it that God is doing versus they're just a bunch of Jesus freaks? What is it that God's trying to tell me versus just another Bible thumper? Why is this happening in my life? What is it that I'm supposed to learn from it to, oh, far-right conspiracy theory? See, the world that we live in falls into two categories. Those who are seeking and searching the truth, wanting to know God. How did I get here? Why am I here? What's the purpose? Where do I go when I die? What's life all about? Versus the ones who just write it off. Well, if there's a hell, I'll be partying with my friends. You're a bunch of stupid, you're drunks, you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about. See, there's always those two responses. One heart's sensitive to the things of God. The other is hard as a rock. And could care less. But God is actively, what? Reaching both groups. 
See, that's why there'll never be a person that stands before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ that will ever have an excuse that they can share before they are condemned in hell for all of eternity. Because God is actively seeking people, seeking to save that which was lost with the message of sin and judgment, of redemption, of love and forgiveness. There were times in my life where I was the hard-hearted rock. But you know what? God continued to bring people into my life to share the message, to soften that hard heart so that I could one day receive Christ as my Savior. You may be here and listening to this and you got a hard heart. But you know what? Our God is not limited by a hard heart. He spoke the universe into existence. He can certainly soften a hard heart. But he will not force anyone at this point in life to bow a knee to him. He's given us the freedom to choose. And the Bible says we need to be wise in the choice that we make. For if we choose Jesus Christ, we choose life. If we reject him, we choose death. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. How do they go from 120 people to 1.9 million people as of last year who professed to be believers in Jesus Christ? How did that happen? The dynamite of God, the Holy Spirit of God, working through the lives of those who have trusted themselves to Jesus Christ. The question I have for me and for you is this. What part are we playing in adding to those numbers? Or are we quenching the Spirit of God and the power of God in our own lives through our own disobedience? My challenge to me, and hopefully to you, is that we become more dynamic in our love of Jesus Christ, in our obedience of the Word of God. We live in a world today that's always looking for gimmicks, new programs, new this, new that. You know, and I look at this church, and it didn't have anything the churches say they need to have in our culture to be successful. The new building programs, the programs, the plays, the dramas, the this, the that, all the different angles to try to reach people. You know what? They didn't have any of that. But what they had we still have. And that's the dynamite of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into the world as we're obedient and we share the message that's been entrusted to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it and we just pray that we will become people who will be obedient to it I pray for those who have a hard heart, maybe even as they sit and listen to this, that you would soften their heart to see the claims of Christ that are true. You've never asked any of us to just believe blindly, but you've laid out evidence, convincing proofs that Jesus Christ is truly the Savior of the world. We think of his resurrection. We think of his death. We think of the fulfilled prophecy that told of those events. We think even of this day of Pentecost where the giving of your spirit was predicted long ago, 50 days after the Passover and after first fruits, we see this to be true. We see that your plan is on target, that nothing will thwart or stop your plan. Your plan for an eternity with with you for those who trust in Christ and an eternity away from you in a place for sin and for judgment, a place called hell. God, I pray that every person here has a clear understanding 
of where they will go the day they're absent from this body. Lord, we just thank you that it's by your grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God to anyone who would believe and not of works. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.